that you're born an Italian If you want your life to be great See that you're born an Italiano And your life will be great Hey there, Paisani. Welcome back to another episode of the Italian-American Podcast. I'm John Viola with my partner in crime, the Italian-American Wikipedia, Patrick O'Boyle, on a beautiful fall day, ready to have a guest that uh, we've known for a little while. I think many of you in the community have known for a little while. She's going to join us in a little bit, Michelle Pietro from uh, Manja with Michelle. But uh, first, Pat, what's new with you? I feel like I'm on death row. Why? You know when people like in jail and they're on death row and they know every day they're at the calendar court, you're going to try to force me into that studio. <laughs> well, I know everybody in the jail. audience is writing me hate mail about Good. getting you out Good. there. Good. We're going to like... start a union. We're yeah, I know. Start a union. You're unionizing. I know. You're always collectivizing. That's your Irish side, by the way. It's the Irish side now. Take them out now. The <laughs> you're a collective ward I leader. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I feel like I'm getting dragged. I feel like every day the warden's passing by my jail cell. With countdowns. <laughs> you, you don't want to leave your base. I really right? don't. I'm happy. No, see, you make that sound like I'm the Unabomber. I don't want to leave my base. <laughs> That's not true. <laughs> Let's back that up a minute. I enjoy the recordings. I enjoy talking to people. And I enjoy doing it in a very comfortable chair, uh, surfing the internet, having a conversation. That's the stuff I like. The only reason I would do this is if you think you're trying, John is trying to sell me that we would get more listeners and it would expand the classroom. Oh, definitely. So yeah, if I, mean, I do this, if I do this, it's a sacrifice for Aratsanos. For the cause, for Aratsanos. Correct. I mean, Correct. these video podcasts get a lot more views yeah, now we'll, than we'll anything see. else. You we'll know? see. Moverine. That's the <laughs> yeah. only, that's all he has on me is is, is expansion. Because we could do more. If we had the kitchens there and stuff, we could do more. So that's Speak, another Speaking of the point. kitchen, I've been working on restoring this 1930 stove that I inherited in my house. It's the most wild looking thing in the world. It's metallic mint green. looks like a car and it's a gas stove. I love uh, it. Does it have an oven underneath it? It's beautiful. It's got beautiful ovens, beautiful burners. Uh, what's, what's, what's the dimensions of the oven? That's a good question. I got to check. I don't know the dimensions. It's called a magic chef. And when I moved into the house, when Nicole and I bought the house, the woman we bought it from was like 95 and she had gotten this as a wedding present her and her husband, and it's she used it until the day she moved out. I mean, you have to strike a match. You... I have Magic Chef, 1979. Do you really? <clears throat> yeah, God has my wood. Yeah, I have an yeah. oven in my stove. It's Magic Chef, 1979. I swear by that oven. I will knock on wood. Tomorrow won't work, but... No, it's supposed to be great. I, mean, I, I, I like a pilot light. Yeah. Because if you have a pilot light in the oven, the oven is like you could proof bread in there. That's why this... I'm on, and I'm on, you know how I go on these journeys of discovery? Yeah. I'm on a journey of discovery. Well, I guess they say biscotti, biscotti, <laughs> biscotti. I would say biscuit, right? Because that yeah. puts me in the gravy category. You're gonna that'll be the next thing I'm beating up on. Put me in the window. <laughs> no, no, I'm with you on that. I'm with no, you. I'm gonna do the clown dunking. That'll be the next thing. They're gonna dunk me in the Please. window as a clown until I say sauce. The gravy but dunking. I've become obsessed lately of reconstruction of these cookies. Which ones? Any of those Italian hallmark cookies of our 1970, 1980 youth. Yeah. So like the biscuit, the biscuit, I would call it which would be the Anizette toast of Stelladora fame. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've come up with, through reverse engineering, my friend Mary Grace, I asked her a few questions. Um, which I have I have reverse engineered it to its, its primor- primordial, would that be correct? Primordial. Primordial state. So also the quote-unquote Anginetti lemon ring, lemon cookies, I've re-engineered them. Mm. So the two of them I think I have to what they were when they came here. And I'm really, like, confident on it. These old stoves make a difference. Ah, uh, sure they do, yeah. yeah. Because when I made the cookies, when I went them in for the second bake, then I shut the gas off. So I had them in for, like, 15 minutes, half hour on 325. I baked them at 350 and put them in at 325. And the heat of that stove, they were nice and dried out in the morning. Yeah, I, uh, I, I'm and I, hoping... I'm going to be honest with everybody. I, I, the only temptation, like I said, when we are in actually, when it's like, it's like, uh, who ran Iran? The Ayatollah, I'm, 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 I'm negotiating with the Khomeini's as far as getting <laughs> But the only thing is, that I think with a kitchen and a stove, we can actually, like, we have Michelle coming out, we could actually cook stuff. But see, I don't know how that's going to play for someone who's listening in their car. It's like when I love Lucy, my favorite husband went to TV. Does it cross over? No, I think you're right. I think that there's there's different versions of the show after like certain things, right? Like if you're doing that kind of stuff, that's video stuff. Maybe you have 
portions of it on the audio, but you're right. Those things don't, I mean, I always find it really funny when we have guests on and, or even sometimes ourselves, right. And we're talking about, let's say a book and the guests will hold the book up to their zoom camera and say, Oh, you mean this one? But for the audience, you know, they don't, they don't know what they're holding up. Right. And we have to be conscious of that in everything we do. That's why I always try to make sure, like if we're having a conversation that's advanced let's say on a topic that we pause and say okay let's put context for the, especially for an audio audience they can't see what we're doing they can't see our gestures they can't see what we're holding wearing referencing you know so it's important to to think that way the only benefit i see to the manhattan move is a mitzvah mobile yeah that's been your dream for a long time i always wanted to do it for those of you who are not from new york and don't know what a mitzvah mobile is um shabbat habad do i say that right shabbat Shabbat are like evangelical um, Orthodox Jews, Hasidic Jews. I don't know exactly which one, but they have these trucks that go around Manhattan and they basically like any kind of evangelical type of uh, religious group like Jehovah's Witnesses. They begin a conversation with secular Jews and they say to them, "Okay, like, uh, well, you don't know how to put on, um, you know, your phylacteries or say certain prayers. And they bring them in the mitzvah mobile and they teach them these things. And I have said to John for years, I would love to have an Italian mitzvah mobile. Yeah. Like an Italian Shabbat where we park a truck and we show you how to make these biscuits that your grandmother made and you have no idea how they were made. Yeah, that's that's the whole goal. Yeah. The only thing would sell me on this is it's a parked mitzvah mobile. Yes, it is. Yeah. So it's the mitzvah mobile for Italian people with a, with a, with a stove. <laughs> with the 1930s stove, which I found now I'm looking up like the, the restaurant. Some of these restored ones go for, you know, huge money and uh i think what we're able to do is do what Vito did when they first started rosella's show and put this thing on wheels with gas and you could actually move it around so it gives you like a mobile stage sets no that's that's that, that listen you want to get me to new york that's enough yeah you know i know that's the, you wait till you see this stuff. i'm gonna send you pictures we're, we're gonna go to like utica i mean not that's a nice place but utica's connected me we're going to take road trips now, five hours. I can't wait for that. I can't wait for Utica, Schenectady. I've been doing some research on upstate. The other day, I literally sat on Google Maps, which I do a lot, looking for Italian spots. And I just left my house and went up the road and just kept moving the map and looking for all the Italian things. Because I live on like a kind of old highway uh, it's called Highway 22, and it goes all the way upstate New York. On my street alone, because it's like a busy street, you could take it up maybe 20 minutes. There's like three restaurants from the 20s, the 30s, and the 40s that have been here forever. I went to the grocery store yesterday, and they had Garduna in the regular grocery store. Did they store. really? Yeah. yeah. I bought all of it and froze it because I was like, I, you know, because you never you know what. You can freeze Gardunas? You know, my grandmother used to parboil them, do all the stripping, and then freeze the, like, the edible part. I'm just freezing the whole ones right now, and it's my, it's, I'm taking a risk here. I'm taking a gamble. Cause I used to do all the, like, you know, scrape it, boil it. Blanch it, all this, and then freeze it, and you can, then you can reuse it, and you know. Why don't you just plant them in your yard? Just scatter the seeds. Yeah, yeah, I'm gonna. I got the seeds. I got, but I don't have a garden yet, right? So I, this is for this winter. So I have them. You want to talk about gardens? You want to laugh? I get a thing on my email the other day, or like an advertisement. I'm, I'm on the web. Harry and David, which I guess is like a big fancy grocer that you order from, like gift baskets and stuff, and now they sell ingredients. They're selling gardens to the public as if they've like discovered this new thing, right? Cardoni for sale. And I think I, I got the thing up here. Let me see how much they want for this thing. It's some ridiculous price to buy them. It's $50 for cardoons. They send you one how bunch. How many cardoons do you get? For, one, you get one, one bunch. One, one bunch, $50, $50. But there's got to be, if, if there's people out there who don't know what cardoons are, cardoons are like, a, I would call this, I mean, I'm going to call it a Sicilian vegetable because you guys eat them 99, 99% of the people consume them are Sicilian. I love them. I mean, in, in mainland Italy, they're eaten, but not to the extent. I love them, too. It looks like celery, right? It looks like American celery. It's like Jurassic celery. Yeah, I think. it's like that, Jurassic that's... celery. And then you, you slice it into chunks, and then you de and you fry it, deep fry. That's how we make it. You can make it in, like, an au gratin. You can make it in – one time I one time I forgot to boil it because you got to boil it first. and It's like a lot of work. I forgot to boil it. I deep fried it and it was tough as nails. So I had to double bake it. So I just put it in like a parmigiana, put sauce, put some cheese. And it was unbelievably good. Unbelievably good. That was like the best culinary mistake I ever made in my life. But yeah, 50 bucks for a bunch. I paid $4 a bunch uh, in the grocery store by me. And it's even less if you go to Arthur Avenue Market and the Boyano Brothers have it. It's just a matter of when they have it because it only grows. It's only really available now, you know, around November, early December. So 
it's like Floyd Vivino makes fun of Bruschetta. He goes Bruschetta. Bruschetta. Which was like toast is still Italian bread. That's pane pomodoro. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, really? I'm not kidding. Yeah, it's I know and all these advances. Stale bread and. Well, speaking of these new culinary advances that are eking their way slowly into the American mainstream, our guest today is a culinarian herself. She's an entrepreneur, a classically trained chef, a culinary consultant, a food writer, cookbook author, blogger, and the creator of Manja with Michelle, the uh, expression of her lifelong passion for Italian ingredients, food, recipes, cultures, and traditions. She's a friend of ours, a longtime friend of the Italian American podcast, and the author of Supified, Soups Inspired by Your Favorite Dishes, and now also her website, manjawithmichelle.com. And uh, we're very happy to have Michelle DiPietro on today. So, Michelle, welcome to the Italian American Podcast. Thank you, John. Thank you, Pat. And I um, really appreciate you guys inviting me on the podcast. I've been listening since the beginning. Yeah, you've been around before we you, were. You, 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 before 100%. You, before no, no, you guys were on. It, it is our honor because you <laughs> were a supporter <laughs> from day one. Well, I appreciate it. Yeah. And, and like us, you are a dedicated and professional Italian-American. You have given your life over to who we are. Michelle, how long have you had the blog, the website, Mind with Michelle? Mm, less than a year. The website- less, less than a year. Well, the website actually got launched this time last year. Um, Manja with Michelle, however, I started like five years ago on social media. Yeah. So the brand is about five years old. Um, the cookbook's two years old. And then I finally got around to the website. <laughs> it took me a little while not being so tech savvy myself. I know the feeling. <laughs> Do you want to know what I, because um, you know, I got no filter. So I let it all run through. All right. When I, when I, when I saw <laughs> that, that Stephanie had scheduled you, because I had said to her in the summer, Let's put Michelle on around Thanksgiving time because that's, you know, soups, Thanksgiving, cold weather. Like Buffalo's about to get, what, six feet of snow tomorrow as we tape this? Yeah. Wow. And then I said, we had Marian Esposito. We're having Marian Esposito on. And we're having Alessandra's Food is Love is on all around the same time. And I said, we're going to max out. We're going to have too many food people on at the same time, even though that's like one of our most popular topics. And then I was talking to uh, Heather Kreuter, who's one of our listeners over the weekend, and and something uh, something about what you've done really um, registered with me is that really what I think the story today's story is that you transitioned from a CPA to an Italian food guru, if that's the right word. And I think there's so many people who want to do that. They, they want, they have the, the nine to five job and the, the advanced degrees, but their heart is somewhere else. Their heart is, yeah. um, let's say, say with you in Italian food and they got to make this huge gamble, right? They have to say to like their family. Um, yes, uh, I have 8,000 different degrees and yes, I've come very far in my career and yes, I'm making great money. And yes, I want to risk that all because I want to like, I don't know, grow gardens somewhere. Right. <laughs> And I can imagine, and, and there's, but there's so I've just realized there's a lot of listeners who want us to come out with the secret sauce. So they want to say, okay, we'll do this and do that and do this. And your family's not going to tell you that you're crazy right. or you're mentally ill or you, what's wrong with you. Are you going to waste your career or, you know, are you losing it because they have a dream, but the, the impediment, and we were just discussing this, you know, so many people who've become successful and we say professional as Italian Americans, but it's also the capacity to garner an income from a passion it allows you to live, a, 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 you know, you live to you know have an actual life. And I think that, you know, um, that really, I think there's so many people out there that really want to hear that part of your narrative, how you went from a CPA in Manhattan to a cookbook author. It's a, it was a long journey. So it wasn't uh, right after each other. So I think we start a little bit further, right? I, grew, I was an Italian American, my, I'm second generation. All my grandparents were immigrants. And my parents were, they didn't go to college. So my sister and I were the, you know, we, we were the first to go to college in our family. And I was always really into academics. You know, I, I always had to get that A, I, I studied a lot. And I think that kind of came with the whole Italian, you know, work hard and do well and everything. So, but I was cooking since I was five years old, you know, making, making eggs by my mother's side. And I always loved to eat. I think that's why I always loved to cook, but I never considered going into food as a career because again, I was just. I wasn't in that space. I was like, you got to do something bigger, better, right? And uh, I, I was an account, ended up being an accounting major. So if you're an accounting major, of course, you want to go work for one of the big six. So I became an auditor, I became a CPA, but got jaded pretty quickly with the whole thing. To be honest, I think a year and a half into it, I was like, oh, I don't know if I really, if I really love this. <laughs> you know, 
I was living in Manhattan and, you know, people would come to visit me and I would take them to all the gourmet food shops instead of like the museums. I'd be like, you got to see this prepared food section. This is amazing. This was in the early nineties. I thought it was the best thing. Like I had never really like seen anything like that before. And I remember like, look, just dabbling, like looking into cooking schools, but you know, how do you go back to your Italian American parents and say, okay, I have all these loans from Georgetown, but mom and dad, I think I want to quit and go to cooking school after they like would be bragging to all their friends. Like, oh, my daughter's lives in New York now and she's got a job and everything. So then I had this opportunity to go live abroad with my current company, which I took and which really was like a life defining experience for me. I was 25. I moved to Geneva, Switzerland for two years. I wanted to go to Milan. That was where I was trying to go, but they didn't have a spot for someone at my level. So they, they had like, we have a spot for you in Switzerland. I'm like, all right, I'm there. And that was really when I think my true like professional food journey began, even though I was there auditing, you know, clients and I was, I was a CPA there, but it was my opportunity to really travel a lot and a lot to Italy and realize how important food is to everybody in, in Europe, you know, and, and even like all my fellow colleagues, all they ever talked about was food, you know, back in New York, I felt like all my colleagues ever talked about was sports. So, (laughs) and I had the opportunity to travel and everything. I took some cooking classes in Tuscany, you know, I did all sorts of stuff. They want me to stay longer, but my contract was for two years. And uh, being that, that whole experience gave me the courage. I mean, like that was a very courageous and brave thing for me to do, like just pick up and leave for two years, not knowing the language. I didn't speak any French. I think my mom was nervous for two years. I don't think she actually relaxed, relaxed for the entire two years that I was there. But that whole experience was very, like, again, I guess helped me with my confidence and my, my courage and, um, I just knew I couldn't go back to New York and like go back to that job. So I started looking into cooking schools. At the end of the two years, I moved back to the US. I quit my job. I moved back in with my parents in South Jersey at age 27. And I enrolled in the restaurant school in Philadelphia. It's the culinary arts. And I guess at that point, what I really thought I would do, I wanted to be in the food industry in, in one way or another. And I thought going to cooking school was the best way to transition. I didn't, I knew restaurants weren't my calling. In fact, the idea of working the line terrified me. <laughs> and sure. to be honest, it still kind of does. It, I just knew that. What, but I thought, me, I really thought I'd own my own gourmet Italian food specialty shop one day. And I think that was from all the influence of living in Manhattan, like the Dean and DeLuca's, the Agatha and Valentina's, and you know, all those sorts of places that I just loved. I thought I could combine my business background with the food. So that's like loosely what I thought when I went to cooking school. I didn't do that, but I ended up working for a small company. Uh, you may have heard of them called Whole Foods Market for about... <laughs> For almost 16 years. And wow. uh, so that really, I mean, so specialty food, I started off in operations as a part-time cook while I was still in cooking school and quickly fell in love with that job. Two and a half years, I mean, two and a half years in operations working in the stores, which I loved, but then I went into corporate and eventually got the my dream job. I mean, I immediately sort of took a liking and, uh, and had an affinity for writing recipes. And I think it's that whole right brain, left brain Thing that I have going on, you know, there are a lot, there is a lot of math. And I mean, I was writing recipes for big batches, sometimes even at commissary levels where it's like, you know, a soup's going to be made in 250 gallons. So, so I really had to like adapt and learn a lot, but that was always my passion. I wasn't into managing people. I wasn't really into like the troubleshooting or the financial side of like running the departments. Cause I like, I came from a finance background more or less. Like I really just wanted to be working with food. You know, I changed my whole career. I wanted to be in the kitchen. So when there was an opportunity to become like a, an R&D chef, I took it or I was, I got, you know, I went for it and I got it. I was in the DC area for a while. Eventually I went, made my way back up to New York, which was 2005. And um, I mean, fast forward, you know, I stayed with that, that job and that was not an Italian American focused job. I mean, that was, I was doing everything. I don't specialize in baking or pastry, but I did everything from like developing shawarma stations to seafood shacks to diners to panini stations but we did open some italian restaurants in our stores we did launch a neapolitan pizza program and i was always so thrilled anytime we got to do anything italian because my my passion was always italian food like personally sure and uh you know fast forward i eventually left that job i went to a smaller job i got laid off after 18 months and then i started consulting that's when i started it's all about the food llc and uh, food service consulting, which I still do, although it's not quite as vibrant as it was when I first started, still focusing on like the creative side of the business. And, and I'm sure you can imagine being an independent consultant. There are peaks and valleys in terms of how busy you are. Like I was super busy in the beginning. Then there were times where I wasn't so busy. That is when I started a, an account called In Abruzzi Si Mangia Bene. And it was just really like for fun. Actually, I had that account going in the background. It was just an account 
in addition to this is a social media account in addition to my it's all about the food to express all my love for Italian food, travel, means, whatever. At another point when I was not so busy with consulting, I became a little more strategic about it. I, I'm like, nobody knows what the heck that is in Abruzzi si mangia bene. They're going to be like, what, what is that? We're going to, uh, that's too long of a word. It's Italian. So a friend helped me come up with the name Manja with Michelle. I'm like, oh yeah, I like that. That's great. And then this is maybe a better opportunity for me to start to share recipes for the home cook, right? Whereas my whole career was in food service recipes. And um, I thought it would be fun. I thought it might be a way to complement what I was doing with consulting. And maybe one day I could monetize it as like a supplement to consulting. And that was really at first the only thing that I thought because I was, you know, really pursuing my food service consulting career. But it soon took on a complete life of its own and it didn't even take that long. Maybe it was at a time when it was a better time on Instagram when you actually could meet people and like grow an account and find, but I I found myself all of a sudden in a community of so many like-minded Italian Americans. And all of a sudden I felt myself more immersed in the Italian American community. And at this point I was living in Manhattan than I had ever been. I mean, maybe other than when I was growing up in South Jersey and I loved it. And, And also connecting all of a sudden I started to get messages from people out there that were making my recipes. And I'm like, Oh my God, like this is, this is amazing. And I realized how much I loved connecting with people out there that were making my food at home. And I still do. It's my favorite, my favorite thing. So, you know, over the years of kind of growing Manja with Michelle, still in the background, because I'm still like basically working in food service, the passion started to shift. And I realized I have my, my passion for food service is going down, my passion for blogging and becoming a blogger and a social media person, really growing Manja with Michelle and, and maybe working on that cookbook that I always wanted to work on, started to grow and grow. And that's kind of where we got to where I am, you know, today. I mean, 2020 came and that was the opportunity for me to, to write my cookbook. You know, so that didn't happen overnight. I mean, I'd always thought about writing a cookbook, but for so many years, like life and work just sort of got in the way. And then 2020 came and that's when I did it. I self-published. That's why I was able to do it within, you know, a matter of months. (laughs) When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, it's been amazing how uh, liberating that can be for people now, the idea that you can self-publish and get stuff out, and things can do really well, too. You know, people, uh, it's it's a very viable stream, and we see a lot of interesting self-published stuff. It's funny, my wife was an auditor uh, like you and quickly realized that it was a uh, machine where you, you know, you entered in and uh, you might not come out the same. I mean, it kind of grinds you up, and yeah. she... Uh, after a little while, decided to leave and and similar to you, start her own stuff, go into fashion, and now she's doing uh, sourcing for a bunch of fashion companies, and she loves it. And but it does give you a, a different approach to analytics and how to look yeah. at things, and so it's a good skill set. But um, you know, you get to 2020, you've had all of this journey, you decide you're going to write and publish your own cookbook. Why soups? What was the what was the thought behind it? I think I had come up with a soup earlier in the year. And I was like December or January, 2019, 2020. And here's the thing, working for a company like Whole Foods for so many years, innovation was a, a word that was driven into us more than you can ever imagine. We were like, I, I used to say innovation's like a four letter word around here. Like huh. we had to come, and especially me being in the, in the job that I was, and I loved it. I mean, your, your job was to constantly come up with new and different ways of doing things, exciting, interesting takes on food. So I've always been of the mindset of looking at food and recipes in a different way. And then because of this Italian passion of mine, it's always like, well, how can I also put a little bit of Italian into almost everything? But in terms of just looking at things in a different way, I remember one of the recipes I had was just fooling around within my apartment. I was like, I want to make an eggplant soup, but I want to do it a little bit different. So I added a little tahini, a little, you know, garlic. And before I knew it, it was sort of like a a baba ganoush, but in a soup. Mm. Mm. And it wasn't like I was aiming to do that. That's sort of how it turned out. And then there's this, I had done another, I'm like, oh, I should do another one like this. And then I don't know if you guys know this Sardinian pasta dish called Malaretis alla Campidinese. It's basically a 
a gnocchi looking pasta that's uh, native to Sardinia. And it's a, it's a classic dish from that region, which is made with a saffron tomato sausage sauce, which is what ha happens to be one of my favorite dishes. And I'm like, that's probably going to be good in a soup. So then I worked on that and I made that into a soup. Again, just sort of like playing around with different things. I posted them on Manja with Michelle. didn't even give it second thought. And, um, you know, kind of having those under my belt when I thought about maybe doing like an ebook, which is sort of how the idea for Superfied came along. An ebook with that maybe would have 10 or 12 recipes. Maybe I would sell it. It would be a PDF. I'd sell it on my website. I thought, well, I, you know, I love soups. I mean, soups, <laughs> I've been developing soups my entire career. Soups are comfort food. Soups are fun. And you can do, there's so much, they're a canvas. I mean, I mean, everything, pasta is a canvas too. Soups are also a canvas. It was just the dish of the moment for me. And the, you know, the idea of the moment was let's turn things into soup because I had just randomly worked on these two ideas. So then I just started writing down ideas, you know, and I was like writing down, I was like, I'm going to write down 10 ideas. And then before I know it, I had like 60 ideas. I know and how then that I goes. Just, you know, we were working on one, another, another, and then somewhere along the line, and I didn't set out to actually publish a printed cookbook. I thought it was going to be like an ebook. Someone along the line's like, oh, you should look into, you know, Amazon. They have like, you print on demand. And so I do it the right way. I mean, I like this, this whole idea sort of just kept unfolding and unfolding and unfolding. And probably if I self-published another cookbook, I would do it a different way. But one thing just sort of led to another, led to another. But for me, it was always all about the food, which is the name of my consulting company. It's all about the recipes. It's all about how, how they taste and how good they are. So all the publishing stuff didn't even come until the recipes were done. You know, it's really interesting. I, um, I think about this a lot because I don't know, I'm, I'm, I like to cook. Right. I, I usually cook holidays and things like that. Um, I have this habit of sort of recipe collecting. Right. And, you know, you think about innovation and the way you do things. And so now I'm like I've got at the point in my life where it's my love of history and my love of food and anthropology kind of combined. And I like to find as many versions of recipes as I can and sort of like create this cross section. Right. So I've been obsessively hunting down old Italian-American cookbooks, and not cookbooks really, because you talk about self-publishing, right? You know, like those like church fundraiser spiral yeah. binder things, right? From Absolutely. different Italian parishes or Sons of Italy lodges or whatever. And, and some of them go as far back as the 40s and 50s. And uh, I'm finding myself kind of going through them and realizing how many ways there are to make the same thing, you know, yeah. and uh, how much of it is kind of innovation. Where did things change? And I think that there's um, there's always room for experimentation, and there's always room for comparison when it comes to these things. You know, people think sometimes you settle on a recipe you like, and there's no need to kind of go beyond. But I think it's fun to go beyond. I think it's fun to see different things, and I think the idea that you can take a career in a different place and turn to this. You you have something to add to the conversation. You have something valuable. You know, it's not just sort of like I got a book deal from this publisher and right. uh, somehow I'm the expert because I had a TV show. Like people can add to the conversation in really creative ways, and that gives us a depth. It gives us a richness. I think that if I, I just want to say, Michelle, one of the great compliments I want to render to your work is that something I've said for a long time is that no one is more into conserving the old and cataloging the old than I am. But we, it, we can't do that without also encouraging and celebrating people who are creative and do new things. And I think one great thing about your book is that they're new recipes. Yeah. And I think that's the real triumph because I fear sometimes that Italian culture has be is becoming fossilized. And even with food culinarily, it's almost like we're becoming like France There's a certain recipe and this is how you do the recipe and there are rules. And if you violate the rules, uh, I wish Ro was on for this because we have this discussion all the time. If you violate the rules, then it's not real Italian food. And oh, yes. <laughs> I said that, you know, there was somebody one day who a tomato showed up on his door, you know, in the, in the post-Columbian exchange of food. And he turned that into sauce, gravy, ragu, whatever you're going to call it. But what would Italian food be if ginger had gotten there? with with the post-Columbian exchange, right? So I, I love the fact that your cookbook is new, modern. You take old recipes. Uh, you take old concepts, maybe, right? Like you did with the Sardinian. Uh, I never say them right. How do you say that? I, I know what you talk about. It looks like a little gnocchi. I say maloredis. I don't know if that's the yeah, correct Yeah, that's, that yeah. Sound, yeah. Mal, I'll go with maloredis. 
you're taking something and you're bringing it, you know, you're, you're invigorating it with something new. And John, like, it's funny because I didn't see, see this coming when we began the conversation. My obsession with the Bishkot, the reconstructing the Bishkot is that the, the modern lemon drop cookie, the modern biscotti that you get at Whole, at Whole Foods or you get at, um, uh, what do you call the coffee place? Starbucks? Starbucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or you get at Starbucks. That is the great-grandchild of the original Italian, Bishkot, the right. original Italian Angeletti. And they're good. They're good too. Like you know, like the the modern ones are dipped in chocolate and chocolate chips and all kinds. And and the 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 modern anginette, if you want to use it as the name of the cookie, now has rigotte and lemon and stuff. And they're they're excellent. They're a different cookie. They're revolutionary. And, and in my opinion, there's room at the table for both those things. And that's what I like about your book. It's a new blast of creative energy in in the Italian American culinary world. Thank you. It was fun. You know, I like to say it's it's about looking at the, the dishes in a different way. It's about looking at food in a different way. But I got to ask the question. There's an 800 pound gorilla in this room and I have to. This gorilla needs its moment. Oh, boy. When you had that conversation with your mother, who freaked out more? Which conversation? The conversation of I'm going to stop being a CPA and I'm going to become an Italian foodie. How did you how did you maneuver? And I think this is a lot. Uh, this goes out to a lot of our listeners who have dreams of doing Italian American projects, which make them change careers. How did you convince the loved ones around you that you weren't crazy and that this was a positive step in your life, and not not a mistake? So it, it wasn't about becoming an Ita- professional Italian foodie at that point. So just to, <laughs> to clarify, but you know when I finally told them after I got that point, it was probably four and a half years. It wasn't that bad. Who freaked out them? I think probably my mom freaked out more if I have, which is surprising, but they knew I was unhappy. Like I was unhappy when I was in New York working in that job. And then, you know, two more years of working in, in, in Switzerland, but that was sort of on the back burner because I was having my best life living in, living in Europe and traveling and stuff. And they believe it or not, it wasn't an awful conversation. Once it finally came around, I, I had been looking into cooking schools before I even went to Switzerland. So like probably two and a half years prior. So it wasn't like out of the blue. And um, well, this is what my dad, this is, I think, this is how he took it. He was like, okay, great. And then he started telling all his friends, my daughter, she's going to be the CFO of Whole Foods Market. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, that's not really the direction I'm going in when I get that, make that job, dad. But okay, if that's what you need to like, that's how you need to justify like me, you know, going into the food business. Like, okay. Did you have any moments when you said, maybe this is a mistake? Oh, no, I never did. I knew it was the right thing. I, and, I, and I loved cooking school and I was so into it. You know, and I was a career changer. I was 27 when I went. I was there with 18 year olds who had been working in kitchens probably since they were 14. I'd never worked in a professional kitchen, but I was so into it and I was so serious. And I, you know, I was the captain of the culinary team. I actually was class speaker at my graduation. I mean, if I could do cooking school over again, I would have got done it over and over. I knew I was in the right place that very first day when we had like our opening speech, I just knew I had made the right decision. And I, I really never looked back. Do you ever talk to your friends who are still in CPA world? Yes. And do they say like, I wish I had done what you did or? A lot of people say stuff like that. Yes. Yeah. And, um, you know, my people that I went to college with, who I'm still good friends. You know, I I have asked them like, what did you? They all were shocked when I told them I was because I was so driven. I was so into being, you know, I was the president of the business fraternity at Georgetown. Michelle, you're a Brutzes, right? Part of Brutzes. Half a right? half a Brutzes, half Sicilian. Yeah, you got to meet my wife because she's half Abruzzese. Maybe there's something. Now I'm discerning a theory about the Abruzzese genetics because she was the same way. Driven, head of every club, number two in her class at Fordham Business School. And uh, a couple of years into life as a CPA, she just wanted out. Same thing. And it's weird because there was so much that went into getting that job. Sure, yeah, it's crazy. And then you realize like, oh my God, like, you know, when I was six, seven years old, when people would ask me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I actually used to say a chef, but somewhere along the line, it totally just, I forgot about that. Even though I always loved to cook, like who, I'm not going to go into food as a career. I'm going to become something, you know, more professional. We have that in our, in our social experience too, that idea of like the profession, and it's changed in the whole country and in the whole world now, but like the idea that the professions, you know, 
maybe it's the Italian peasant background. The professions gave you a title, you know, they gave you a a license. You had to pass a, like you, you, it gave you a a rung on the ladder that nobody could take away. You know, even now my wife keeps, I don't know if she does anymore, but was keeping her CPA license because that license was such a big accomplishment, you know? And, uh, I get that, you know, Pat, it's like you, right? You're teaching and obviously working here full time, but like, you know, you're still a lawyer. You still made that rung on the ladder. And I think that's in our psychology, yeah. the, the right. professions, you know. Like I did something big already, so now it's okay. Right. Yeah. Like you could always go back to that. You have like the safety net of here's a license. Nobody could take it away from you. Right. It's the, you know, whatever. I think the, what's the Italian equivalent? Not ingegnere. They, they have an equivalent for an accountant. Uh, uh, ingegnere. Something, well, right? It's not- yeah, something like that. Something that you could put on on your business card that's a three-letter acronym, uh, three-letter abbreviation, but um, you've got that, so they can never take it away from you. And I think that that's, uh, yeah, that's really deep. And I don't regret it. I mean, it it was part of who I am. I mean, look, it gave me the opportunity to, to, at a very young age, to interact with people that were very high level at big companies, you know, because I had to do that as an auditor. And then I got to live in Europe for two years. Yeah. You know, I mean, and travel and really like immerse myself. And that that was a life defining experience for me, really. Is it me or accountants unhappy? <laughs> all, the, all the career change people, it's like nine times out of 10, they're accountants. Auditing's and, tough. And the higher they're up the accounting ladder, the more they hate it. I never heard someone say, gee, I love being an accountant. I mean, if you're out there, let us know. But I don't think we're going to get any mail. <laughs> Every accountant I hear, I don't know, they're always negative. They hate what they do. It's like 10 for 10. Well, auditing was a little more interesting because, you know, you weren't I wasn't actually doing the books for a company. You're going in, you're learning about different companies. You're on these audit teams. They're fun. There's these big part, you know, big audit dinners. And, you know, it was actually I didn't you know, I didn't hate it. I didn't hate it, but I didn't I wasn't passionate about it. And I just realized I had I had to be passionate. I had to do something. This is what I was said to myself. I'm 27 years old. I have another 35 years of working. What am I going to keep doing this? (laughs) Yeah, it's true. It's a long it's a long runway. That's a long time. Yeah. Isn't is AI, do you think, in your opinion, going to get rid of a lot of these accounting jobs? Probably. I hear that constantly from people in academia who work in uh, accounting, that they just think that AI is just going to keep whittling them away. I think they probably got a lot of, a lot of auditing jobs. I mean, when I was auditing, we were like checking addition on an adding machine, Yeah. believe it or not. Yeah. It wasn't all digitalized at that point. Like all the auditing now, a lot of it you can do from your home remote. You know, we would... We would go to the jobs with like all these work papers, like lots and lots and lots of papers. And, you know, we would like literally like go through papers at the client. Now I bet so much is done. I mean, I haven't been at field for a really long time. I mean, it's going to be really interesting to see people. I think I'm noticing now, like I've been reading about a lot of these companies trying to get people back in the office full time. Right. And uh, I was having a conversation with somebody from the city of New York the other day, and they were saying that, you know, the mayor's office really takes this very seriously. The, the encouragement to get companies to commit to bringing people back in full time, because obviously the local economy desperately needs those spenders to be there on a regular basis for lunch and shoe shines and all that stuff. But I think that two plus years uh, remote, has showed us that it's going to be hard to get people back there. And when you combine that flexibility that was sort of uh, hoisted upon us with the idea that technologies are starting to outpace the need for a lot of jobs that used to employ huge swaths of society, right? Because like you, you know, you say, I can remember when Nicole and I first started dating, her auditing team was gigantic. And the bigger the company, the bigger the team, and they'd yep. go in together and they'd yep. be there. You know, busy season was all hours of the night. When you when the computer can do that automatically, we're going to start to see not just people who are going to change careers because of passion, but some who, unfortunately, whether they're passionate or not, are going to have to change careers without choice because the need for people in a lot of these roles are lessening. So it's going to be interesting to, to watch that transition for people. And uh, I do think, like your story, it does take a little bit of courage in yourself. You know, it takes a it takes a gut check. I mean, if you go back to John in the midst of the pandemic and we were recording, we were we were blown away by that St. Joseph's Day. How many people made Zaples at home? Yeah. Because they had the, the time. Yeah. You know, that's what I think the one benefit of the, the the one benefit of the whole work from home thing is that now people have the time, the flex, maybe the flexibility, however you want to word it, to cook. I, I, I you know, the, the family that eats together stays together. Well, food blogs 
blew, like blew up. I mean, unfortunately, I didn't have my blog at the time, you know, because I just started <laughs> until like a year ago. But my friends who are food bloggers, it blew up, meaning like their traffic just like doubled, tripled, quadrupled like overnight. And so all the bloggers are all of a sudden making like pretty good money because everybody's like looking for recipes now because the way bloggers make money is by ads on their site. And the more people that go to their site, the higher the traffic, the more money you make. So bloggers all of a sudden, you know, we're doing really, really well. Everyone's looking for recipes to cook at home. I think people are, particularly in Western societies, are going to be, we're, we're just at the beginning of a whole new understanding of work life balance, where you work, how you work, the hours you work. Um, I think we're in for a lot of changes. And I think that cooking and food and family time, I mean, look, it's also, don't forget, we're, we're in an inflationary economy. You know, things are really expensive. So but before COVID happened and when the dollar was at a different point, if you got home from your job and you wanted to order something from a restaurant or Uber Eats or whatever, you know, even these new things had not factored in the cost of living for the people involved. So it was a lot cheaper. The, the, the fees were cheaper. You could get food. Now everything is more expensive. It's uh, more expensive for people to go out and eat than it's been for a long while. So it's economics. It's the convenience of being home. It's the good feeling that comes with it. So I think, yeah, a lot of this stuff is still in the early stages of its of its explosion, really. I think that there's a lot more of this ahead. And hopefully, like, uh, that drive of, of getting people back into the kitchen once, you know, during the pandemic, hopefully it'll stay somewhat. Like, people realize they'd like to cook or, like, they're into it. And, and you know, I hope it doesn't, as things go back to whatever normal, that that passion is still there for a lot of people. I, I think the economics are another great factor in, in favor of that. I think yes. nothing... True. Nothing makes cooks better than the expense of eating out, right? right. I mean, it's just, you know. Pasta Vazul will be back in fashion. Yeah, you're not kidding. That's true. And Well, beans are really good for you, so that's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, my dad always said, like, one of the secrets to his success, and I don't know if he came to this himself or we all came to it sort of having conversations about life, but, like, you know, coming from a family where his parents really, really had to stretch a budget, he always felt that you could go out and risk on yourself because if everything fell apart, you ultimately knew that you still could come home to your family, the table, and Basta Vazul was, you know, a very cheap meal to make or, you know, spaghetti al yulia or, you know, it's not that, that peasant cuisine is peasant cuisine for a reason because it's affordable yeah. and it feeds a whole family. And right. I think that there's a certain inner, you know, we love these recipes now as family recipes and soul food. But when you look at them from that economic standpoint, they're also really nourishing, really healthy, and frankly, really cheap to make. So yeah. that they've got they've got a lot of multiple facets of value, you know. For sure, it's like a soup. I mean, you talk about soup, soup, soups, the greatest way in the world to to spread your ingredients. Yeah, and to stretch the dollar. Yeah, for sure, all that liquid, and it's also probably one of the better items to make on the food service level too. Higher margins, you know, it's like coffee. Yeah, that's true. You don't think about that when you have when you have that company, you know, the, the less money you got to put in an ingredients, the more people you could serve. <laughs> See, that's, and, the food, right? that's the food service minding me coming out. <laughs> if you had if we if we had had this thin house studio with the kitchen, was it uh, magic chef? Was it lime green stove? Well, how we call it? Green, it? Yeah. I, I'm calling now, it metallic mint. Green. It was in, mint green. Would you have made us lunch? Well, I would have brought lunch even if there was no stove. But if I had if I had the stove and the pots. The second you had even indicated that maybe we would do this in person, I was immediately like, okay, what am I going to make? You know, and how am I going to heat it up? Because they probably don't Same. have a stove there. Not yet. No, we got the stove. The stove was the only way that we made any progress in negotiations. <laughs> I changed it. Yeah. Well, you know, you guys were, you got, you guys were talking about that before I came on. And um, what I was thinking as you were talking is, well, yeah, you'll have the audio podcast, but maybe you'll transition into doing some video podcasts. Yeah. I mean, we're going to have a regular video podcast. As a matter of fact, we, oh, okay. the first one I Great. I recorded with Rosella and uh, the Sabino from Growing Up Italian, we have the video. Their team actually made the video for us. And I've just been sort of putting my touches on it because this is all new for us. It's very exciting. Yeah. And uh, like, you know, we're taking another leap like you did. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, But I think, yeah, doing more video stuff, particularly cooking, because think about how many great guests we have on in the culinary sphere like yourself or even not. But as Italians... I always get the sense that like, you know, you made that leap, right? And you, like you said, you were 27. Here's all these kids who probably been working lines in kitchens. They knew, you know, what kind of knife and this and that. Yep. But I think we feel um, 
maybe it's somehow genetically in us, this like predisposition because we're such a food people. Um, so I, you know, I think the idea of having people come in and even if it's, you know, after the show it's is recorded, gonna, just cooking lunch together. Everybody. No, for it's sure. not going to be for everybody. But yeah. I would have enjoyed, like today's a soupy kind of day. Yeah, sure is. It's cold. Like if we had a nice table, like we could eat like gentlemen and not like people do, like out of containers in there. I can't do that. Michelle, what's your favorite soup? In general or out of the book? You tell me. I tend to like gravitate towards brothy soups. So, I mean, I love all soups, but I tend to gravitate towards brothy soups. So in the cookbook, I would say my favorite favorites are um, the ones that are more brothy, which so that would include like the orichette with sausage and broccoli rabe. That's just such a great soup. The chicken marsala soup. I mean, although it's still a little thickened, but brothier than some of the others is outstanding. And then believe it or not, the because this is not a 100% Italian American cookbook, Supified, is the the Chinese egg roll soup. It's brothy and it has it, it is so good. It's huh. shrimp, it's pork, and whatnot. Would you be willing it, to break in and christen the stove? Yeah, oh god, yeah, I would be honored. Are you kidding? What kind of pots do you like? Because I was cooking on on uh, all clad yesterday, and I have my terracotta one that Pat got me, and I, I was debating what I was going to cook in. Well, I made all of my soups for the cookbook. I mean, I use Dutch ovens. Really? You know, a, a nice a nice cast on, a cast iron ceramic coated Dutch oven. Wow. And I I use it for so many different things. I'll, the only thing I don't love to use that for is caramelizing onions for for French onion soup because you just can't get that brown. So I always want to use like a more you know industrial like more stainless steel pot for that. All clad's wonderful, but I use my Dutch oven for so much and definitely for soups, definitely for ragouts. You know, I've got a big stock pot for when I make stock. And um, I think the challenge is always just finding the best nonstick, but I have now I have different brands of Dutch ovens. So there's different ones that I enjoy, but all clad's a really great name for regular pots and pans. You like the Le Creuset? You think, is that the Cadillac of? Uh... Yeah, I have Le Creuset. Uh, yeah, Do you I have, have the Le ones Creuset? made in France, the ones made in China? Cause now they, I think they kind of pull some of them. I don't not. know, actually. <laughs> you should check. Yeah, I mean, I have um, Le Creuset, I have Marquette Castings, I have Lodge, I have, gosh, I have all the different ones. Staub, I think if it, I have a lot of different types of Dutch ovens, actually. It's a little crazy. Do you ever use one of the, Pat, I, I go between, some people uh, call them Taina, some people call them Kakavala. What's the pots? How, how do you describe the difference between the two terracotta pots? I'm not a terracotta pot person. You never use them? To cook? Yeah, yeah. You, should. Um, you should try it. We'll expand. I've only used them to display food, to be honest. No, I don't really have any terracotta pots. That's a category that I guess I need to fill. Yeah, Pat. Pat's an expert. He got me on them, and they're really great. I got like a, a diffuser that came with one, the heat. I mean, the, the way the heat spreads through it. Yeah. But, but Pat, there's two different kinds, right? Am I wrong, Pat? Um, there are many, as all things in the Neapolitan language, there are debates. What happened was there were two categories of pots. Right. So if you go back 100 years ago, 150 years ago, you had a copper pot, which was uh, lined in tin because copper is an excellent conductor of heat, but it's reactive. So remember, people are cooking over charcoal. Um, the copper pot was necessary. Um, the terracotta pot, um, that's really ancient. Right. That goes back to when we were Greeks and Romans and Oscans and Sanites. That is a lesser of a conductor of heat. It's a low and slow cooking experience, right? So if you're going to cook beans in there, that was traditionally uh, a bean cooker, you know, and you would or you would make your pasta vasul in there because remember something, the Italians were always fearful of tomatoes reacting with uh, metals. So the quote-unquote ragu, gravy, sauce, whatever you want to cook it, that was traditionally cooked in there, still cooked in there by a lot of people because, again, it's low, slow, and non-reactive. Because the, the Italian mentality is that tomatoes are always going to react with metal, even if it's not a reactive metal like aluminum. Um, that's why a lot of people in Italy won't even stir the gravy with a metal spoon. Um, so they, they are the two categories of pots that you had. And again, they were all based on cooking on charcoal. Did I answer your question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I'm starting to like, I'm, I was thinking of more stuff and then I think that answered your question. So, Pat, with the terracotta pots, I would assume that once they they may take a little bit longer to, to heat up, but then once they're hot, they must hold the heat for quite a long time. Like yeah, they never the cast you nev iron, right? You never have to worry. It's very hard for the gravy to burn or to overcook or to overheat. Okay. So it's a low it's a low and slow cook. 
but it's very traditional. Like if you go into, matter of fact, you know, the, the, especially in Calabria, some parts of Campania, other parts of Italy, they use the word piñata for a tall terracotta pot that they cook beans in. Mm. But that's the same word that we share with Spanish. And a tall terracotta bean pot is where the Mexican piñata came from. Wow. So when the conquistadores were in Mexico, they used, they would decorate their piñata pot and they would break it on festive occasions and they would fill the pot with all kinds of goodies. So the Mexicans decorated a piñata. I had no idea. Where do you get your terracotta pots? Do you get them here? It's getting get harder and harder. They used to be an <laughs> yeah. American importer that brought them in. Uh, they just stopped. So then places like uh, Home Goods, they'd pop up every now and then. I, I've often said, like, you know, the beauty of Italian-America today is you can, kind of get it, you can kind of get everything now, especially if you're in the New York, New Jersey area. Uh, the one thing that I think is very hard to get now, even harder than it was 10 or 15 years ago, are those pots. I think they were much more available years ago. That could be a great project for the store. See if we can get them, you know, get the bomb. And... Let's see if we live that long. Yeah, maybe Michelle could do a cookbook. The next cookbook. Here we just listen. listen. Here we push again. All I want to do is eat. Michelle, come in. <laughs> I, I have anointed you the bat. You are going to be Michelle the Baptist, like John the Baptist. John the Baptist <laughs> got to baptize Jesus, and you're going to get to baptize our stove. Well, you like to eat, and I love to feed people. Yeah, I do. So there you go. See. This is going to be a perfect friendship. <laughs> well, yeah, I, we look forward to that. Michelle, you have the opening invitation to cut the ribbon on the, the restored stove. I'm there. Thank you. Oh, good. Well, th- thank you for coming on today. This is always fun to catch up. And uh, if you want to find Michelle, manjawithmichelle.com is the website. They've also got a new line of T-shirts coming out that uh, we got to preview in the new neighborhood that I think are just great and everybody's going to really love. So make sure you get over there and support what Michelle's doing and get to wear your Italian culinary pride uh, on your on your sleeve or, or on, on your front, really, because uh, there's some good-looking shirts out there. So it's going to be a good way to support Michelle's good work. So hopefully everybody takes a migration over. And, uh, Michelle, we'll, we'll look forward to having you back when we got the stove. Thank you so much, Pat and John, for having me on. This was so much fun. I really enjoyed it. Appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, uh, well, uh, so, you, you started. You Don't get excited early on the kazoo. Hold on. I'll give you. All right, I'll give you. I'll wave you like this. Now you threw me uh, off. Is this what happened to Mozart when he was about to play? Yeah, this is probably now the I'm biggest concert of his life. You me out. Hold on a minute. Okay, hold on. Get gear up. I'm coming. No, it's been a lot of fun for us too. This is. It's great catching up, and, and you're doing such great stuff. So I hope Thank everybody you. out there has enjoyed. Hope everybody out there goes and takes a look at manjawithmichelle.com and comes back next week for more Italian-American podcasts. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. If you want your life to be great, see that you're born in Italiano, and your life will be great. See that you're born in Italiano. 